Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and from PRX, this is Israel Story. Israel Story is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So, last episode we met couples in love. But for every love story, of course, there are many, many more tales of broken hearts and teary eyes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our theme today. You know, if a stranger would go through the emails the Israel Story staff send each other, they'd notice something pretty odd. Many of the threads end with someone writing a single word, Rut, and occasionally the slightly longer two-word form, Rutsof. Rutsof is the Hebrew equivalent of over and out, what you say when a military communication is finished. Rut, I guess, is the Israeli Roger, as in Roger that. So, maybe it's a symptom of living in an overly militarized society. Maybe it's just catchy and fun. But the expression, over and out, has become part of the way we talk. Even part of our culture. It's a curious phrase, really. The over part is easy enough. You're either passing the message over to the other person, or else indicating that the communication is over with. Done. But the out? I mean, out where? Where are we going? That's the question we're going to be asking today. Where do you go after things are over? What are you left with? And what can you simply not let go of? So today on Israel Story, over and out. We've got three stories of relationships that have ended, and the things, the often slightly nutty things, that people do once they have. We'll journey back to the early days of the State of Israel, and then travel all around the world, to London and New York, even to Beijing. But we'll start much closer to home, right here in the north of Israel, in a small kibbutz midway between Afula and Betshean. Act 1, United We Fall. Here's Yochai Meital. The story of En Harod, the split, the pilug, was a very sad story. It was a break of a lot of years of friendship, and all of a sudden, the whole thing fell apart. There were fistfights here, actual fistfights, terrible things, a real drama which tore apart families. Big friendships that were completely destroyed. The fight here was like war, really war. Once upon a time there was a small kibbutz in the north of Israel called Encharod. It was founded in 1921 by Chalutzim, or pioneers, who came from Russia. Encharod was the uh, first kibbutz to be in this place, in the eastern side of Emek Israel, Israel Valley. The kibbutz was built on top of a hill covered with wildflowers. Right below it was a wide valley with green fields, and in the distance, the Gilboa Mountain, where King Shaul and his son Yonatan were slain in the biblical battle with the Philistines, towered above it all. The Jordan River snaked to the east, and beyond it on clear days, you could make out the imposing hills of the Gilad. The members of En Charod weren't each other's neighbors. They were family. 
They lived a completely communal life, tilling the land together, going out to the battlefield together, raising their children together. Three times a day they would gather in the Chedrochel, the dining hall, for communal meals. And on Friday they'd mark the end of the work week with some singing, dancing, and a drop of cheap brandy. This serene idealism went on for more than 30 years. But then one day, in 1952, it all came to an abrupt end. To understand the rift that tore apart this tight-knit community and changed it forever, we need to go back to the early days of the state. Though they never represented a large segment of the population, kibbutzim were the golden boys of the Zionist movement. They stood for self-sufficiency and might, and their members, tan and strong, were the epitome of the new Jew, the Tzabal. Right after the establishment of the state in 1948, Israel found itself fighting for its survival. Most male kibbutzniks joined the fight, forming the backbone of the armed forces, and they paid a very heavy price. 12% of the casualties of the War of Independence were kibbutz members. The war destroyed a lot of things internally, psychologically. That's Muki. Muki too. I am a member of Kibbutz Engev for the last 60 years. And a leading historian of the kibbutz movement. You know, people who had dreams, you know, like to make a revolution, a pacific revolution, to create a society by by voluntary uh, organizations, to create a new world, and they found themselves in war. And people find themselves with uh, death, destruction, personal fears. They were regular people, went to the war. And when they came back from the war, the state had no time for them because huge immigration came into the state. In the early 1950s, just as Israel was trying to recover from the devastating violence and get on its feet, a massive wave of immigration from North Africa and the Middle East flooded the country. The government was totally focused on the mammoth task of absorbing them. Imagine today people are scared of immigration to Europe. And they say, one million, how can we absorb one million? It will break Europe. And then you have a society that had to absorb one and a half the quantity of people who were living there. The state had no time to deal with the old voluntary society, you know. Now, maybe, as Mugi says, the state had more pressing matters to deal with. But its legendary leader, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion, found the time to lash out against the kibbutzim. In a speech he delivered in the Knesset, Israel's parliament, in 1950, the old man, as he was fondly called, didn't hold back any punches. Where's the kibbutz movement when it comes to helping out with immigration, he asked. They've done so splendidly for themselves. But what have they contributed to the task of absorbing the new aliyah? I'm deeply ashamed of the kibbutz movement. This statement triggered a heated debate within the kibbutzim. It was part of a much larger clash between various different political parties in the new country's left and center. The irony was that, all in all, they were pretty similar. I mean, much closer to each other ideologically than they were to, say, Jabutinsky and Begin's revisionists. But as often happens within groups with similar ideologies, the internal disagreements, even on minor points, 
can get out of hand and cause tremendous ruptures. Just think of the history of the Christian church, for example, or the backstabbing between Trotsky and Stalin. As you can imagine, there were countless divides within Israel's early socialist movement. It's really complicated. But in broad terms, there was a split between Ben-Gurion's supporters, members of Mapai, the historic labor party, and the more left-wing parties, Achdut Avodah and Mapam, who saw themselves as the true bearers of socialist Zionism. In some ways, it was a local version of clashing Cold War ideologies. Ben-Gurion was steering the country towards the West, while Encharod's own Yitzhak Tabenkin and other leaders of the kibbutz movement, many of whom immigrated from Russia, glanced eastward with admiration. They looked up to Stalin and saw Ben-Gurion's maneuver and harsh rhetoric as a crude attempt to solidify his rule and discredit any ideological adversaries. Encharod was in the eye of the storm. Most of the leader of the kibbutz Mulchad were in Encharod. Encharod was the capital city of the kibbutz Mulchad. That's Israel Smilansky. I'm a native. I was born in this kibbutz. Israel's 84, a retired farmer and former music teacher. He boasts that five of his 16 grandchildren still live on the kibbutz. But 65 years ago, when all this ideological turmoil was taking place, Israel was just a young soldier. In 1952, after he was discharged from the military, he came back to a home he could barely recognize. The kibbutz was in two groups that couldn't speak to each other. The situation in Encharod was very bad. It was um, two sides of the the dining hall. It was divided into two sections. At first, like a feuding couple, members of the kibbutz tried to work things out, come to an agreement that would allow them to carry on. But the arguments just became louder and louder, and the two factions drifted apart. An actual line was drawn down the middle of the cheder ochel, the very heart and symbol of communal life. And that simple white line had the power to split close friendships, and even families. Rachel Letzter was a child at the time. My parents fought all the time, and they had a big problem. They couldn't sit and eat together. So I remember my sister would constantly have to bring them food back to our home. It was really difficult. Rachel's was a mixed family, and she was torn between her father and mother. On the major holidays, like Passover, we would have to go to the city, to my mother's family because we couldn't celebrate together on the kibbutz. Encharod's school was the main ideological battleground. Officially, it was run by Mapai, Ben-Gurion's party, but most of the teachers belonged to other factions. These young idealistic educators were actively taking sides in the classroom, drawing students after them. Rachel's two older sisters were teenagers at the time and followed their teachers. The mother was on their side as well, but her father was a staunch Ben-Gurion supporter. Eventually, the parents decided to split their kids between the two factions, the pragmatists of Ben-Gurion's Yichud and the ideologues of Tabenkin's Meuchad. Ironically, both those words, Yichud and Meuchad, come from the same Hebrew root, which means united. Rachel, who still lived in Meuchad at the time, started going to school in the Yichud. Going to the new Yichud school was a nightmare, literally a nightmare. 
On the way to school, I'd bump into my old friends, who still went to our old school of the Mulchad faction. And I felt like a traitor. I didn't want them to see me, so I'd hide. One of the women that was in, in our group, she came up and said, I had a son. His name was as if she, he, he was dead. It was impossible to listen to this kind of lamentation. It was horrible. The kibbutz descended into a tension-filled silence. People on both sides were engaged in espionage and sabotage against each other. I was an intelligence officer in the army, Daniel Luz recalls. Growing up, he and Israel, the proud grandpa, had been good friends. They even had Russian nicknames for each other. Daniel was Ivan and Israel was Vasil. But the split severed all that Soviet-style camaraderie. Israel was an Ichudnik, backing Ben-Gurion's Mapai. And Daniel, on the other hand, joined Meuchad. Together with his brother, who was an electrician, Daniel snuck into the children's center, where the Ichud folk would meet up to strategize. We had a wiretap in the ceiling, and we would sit in the shower and listen to their headquarter meetings. That way we knew what they were planning and what they were up to. Later, the Luz brothers ransacked the place. Here's Israel again. The whole thing was very bad. It was, was very hate from both sides. Muki, the kibbutz historian, also remembers those days. People said how it's... How is this happening to us? We love each other. We were with a, you know, they enter into a tragic trend. The tragic trend is something that, like destiny. We can't control it. And was fight, really fight. Fist fights? Fire, yeah, fight, like, uh, like in a movie. <laughs> it's, wow. It was, uh, and, and in the dining hall, there was a fight also. Fights broke out more and more frequently, over the use of a tractor or the division of a field of crops. After a few youngsters took over a house that belonged to members of the other side, a giant brawl began. Basically, the entire kibbutz participated. Eventually, cooler heads prevailed. But the rift was so deep that people on both sides realized that this liminal state was untenable and that a split was unavoidable. So the two sides appointed mediators, members of other kibbutzim who helped them negotiate the terms for the breakup. Ultimately, about half of Encharod's members left to form a new kibbutz, Encharod Ichud, directly adjacent to the old one. But the divorce just got uglier and uglier. That's Daniel again. Each side took whatever they could with them. Cows, heavy machinery from the car repair shop. You have no idea how far it deteriorated. People took electricity poles, everything. We fought over trucks. There were two trucks. One was good and the other one was pretty crappy. In the divorce settlement, Daniel's side, Encharod Meuchad, got the crappy truck. But he and his friends weren't going to let that fly. So, in a well-planned military-like commando operation, they snatched the other truck. A month later, as the truck was out delivering goods in the area, the Meuchad driver was ambushed. They threw him out and took the truck back. It went back and forth like that for a while. Retaliations upon retaliations upon retaliations. Ultimately, things started to settle down, and 
All that was left was the pain. You pass the split, and then you have the period of mourning, silence. People don't speak about it. It was a very, very difficult moment. Each kibbutz concentrated on rebuilding itself, but En Harod, just like the entire kibbutz movement really, never returned to its previous glory. With time, the open wound morphed into a nagging scab, which the old-timers, at least, will carry with them to the grave. My mom never went back to visit her friends after she moved to Ichud. No, not even once. And my dad didn't set foot in Muhan till the day he died. Once I grew up and had children of my own, I asked them about it. I wanted to understand how they could do such a thing, how they could have put us kids through all of this. Believe me, I don't think anyone who wasn't part of it can really understand. What went on here? It was a civil war. I go to Ichud from time to time. My wife has some friends there. But if they have some sort of performance, say, in the dining hall, I don't go. Before the split, when Daniel and Israel still called each other Ivan and Vasil, their fathers were also good friends. They too broke along party lines. Decades later, they met up in the regional old age home. And they spoke together what happened, why we split, why, why this happened. And they sat there and tears fell from their eyes. After a while, they asked themselves why we did it. What happened to us? And silence came. Nobody was ready to, to speak about it. Ideologia e Ideology is the ruin of nations. Think about it. Yochai Meital is the senior producer of our show. En Charod's story, that fierce ideological split that tore the community apart and seems so inexplicable to us now, wasn't unique. If you drive around the country, you can see many divided kibbutzim. Ashdot Yaakov Ichud and Meuchad, just south of the Sea of Galilee, Givat Chaim Ichud and Meuchad near Chadera, Givat Ashlosha and Einat outside of Petach Tikva, Gvat and Ifat not far from Nazareth, Mashabei Saden Chatzirim near Be'er Sheva, and the list goes on and on and on. A national geography, all made up of feuding socialists. Our next story looks at breakups from an entirely different angle. There's this concept here, Haexa Mythologi, the mythological X, 
which doesn't really exist in the States, even though both X and mitologia are just words in English. I guess the closest would be the one that got away. But the mythological X is different. Unlike the one that got away, it isn't someone you sort of wish things would have turned out differently with. Actually, many times when you think about your mythological ex, you're delighted things didn't work out. You sort of feel you dodged a bullet. That brings us to Shoshi Shmulovich's story. Act 2. Prison Prayers. I'm sitting on my couch with Jonathan, a skinny, ultra-Orthodox Jewish convert with a long, wispy beard, sharp cheekbones, and big, expressive eyes. The table is covered with half-empty cups of tepid coffee and Jonathan's cheap Israeli cigarettes, which he pulls the filters out of before smoking. We've been here talking and looking at old photos of us for the past three hours. We're looking at a photo of Shoshi kissing my eyebrow. What do you think of when you look at that photo, Shoshi? I don't know. What does our relationship our first love, which in some ways never really ended. What does it mean? That's what I've been trying to figure out for the past year and a half, ever since Jonathan began calling me from the Israeli prison where he was doing time. When I was like, whose number do you want? I was like, give me Shoshi's number. That's, that's the first number I asked for. We hadn't spoken in years, so at first I couldn't understand why he was calling me. Or why I kept answering. But a long time ago, we were in love. And now, he was on suicide watch. I met Jonathan 12 years ago, when we were both 18. His dad, who lived in London, and my mom, had been friends in the 70s. They'd lost touch for years, and my family always lived in New York. So we didn't all meet until my senior year of high school, when we spent a weekend in London at Jonathan's family home. You roll up in the black Audi cab. I didn't really think that much of anybody getting out of the car until you got out of the car. In the moment when you, when you meet someone and then there, there is that, that cosmic feeling, it's hard to meet anyone who's ever f- felt that feeling and not just run with it and been like, let's you know, see where this goes, like, you know, see, where the, see where the rabbit hole ends up. And that's sort of where I went. From that moment until I left London, Jonathan and I were inseparable, which was surprising. I was painfully shy, sheltered, and very studious. Jonathan was a charismatic prep school dropout with dreadlocks and a smoking habit. We all spent that weekend touring the London Eye and the British Museum, sampling the chip shops. We'd pile into Jonathan's dad's minivan, Jonathan and I sitting way in the back oblivious to anyone else. Neil Young's Harvest Moon was stuck in the CD player and it became our soundtrack. On the second day, Saturday, Jonathan kissed me. We were making out and I went and slipped a couple of pills. What, what is that you're taking? What are you taking right now? And you were like freaking out. I remember this. I was like, no, I'm taking um, like a sleeping tablet. And I, I lied straight to your face, and I was like, yeah, I'm taking a sleeping tablet. Like, oh, okay. And I was like, all right, fine. Months later, he'd confessed that he was a drug addict, that he'd quit school after a cocaine overdose. When we met, I was a mess. I've been a mess most of my life, and when we met, I was a mess too. 
I had sort of been messing around with a lot of um, cheap cocaine renditions, cheap speed renditions, and a lot of psychedelics. Probably had my first joint of cannabis about 11. That was around the time of his parents' divorce. I had um, just a nature for addiction, it seemed. And I feel that a lot of things in my life, not just drugs, I, I have a, a, a tendency to become addicted to them in a very deep way, whether it's you know, my magic tricks or music or, or even my spiritual life, so with women as well. But that weekend, at least, that one little Valium was the only thing he took. We just hung out, you know, like, we were together all the entire time. I, I didn't feel the, the need so much and touched anything. And you know, on the way back from the airport, it dawned on me that I was coming down, coming down off, like, you know, a bunch of different stuff that I'd been taking up until you had arrived that was the last time that I touched anything like that for the remainder of the time that we were together until we broke up. When we first met, Jonathan had still been using, but he had been cutting down. The worst of his drug use seemed to be behind him. And he had hope for the future. He had just gotten his high school equivalency and been accepted to nursing school. I was living with my dad, my sister. You know, things were, were quite idyllic in that sense. You know, I had a roof over my head, and um, I, I felt that my, my writing, my musical writing at the time, was very good, and I was, I was starting to mess around with poetry and writing and things like that. When I got back home to New York, Jonathan and I began talking on the phone. A lot. And it was through those hours and hours of long-distance phone calls that we just fell completely in love. It, it makes sense that our entire relationship has been one of words, because the first thing you ever bought for me was a book by Pablo Neruda, and in it you said, love begins when a woman enters her first word into her poetic memory. I stole that from Milan Kundera. That's the, that's the inscription that you wrote inside that, that book. But love is really about building a new dictionary, a specific dictionary that's just, just between the two of you, where one word that's seemingly innocuous is a very important thing all of a sudden. For us, it was, it was very much the, the speaking and, and listening to each other. I think first time we'd had a friend who was prepared to listen to all the BS in our brains and in our hearts. After two months of that, Jonathan landed in New York. It was early June, my last month of high school. I cut class and took Jonathan to ride the cyclone in Coney Island. He bought me a corsage and took me to prom. It was dreadful, but I looked great. You know, I was turned off in, in my tuxedo and my dreadlocks just looked completely ridiculous. And you looked like something out of a 1950s like uh, romance movie. When we walked into that ballroom, Jaws literally dropped. Pretty much anyone who saw us together was taken aback. We seemed like such opposites. But once they got to know him a little, everyone loved Jonathan. He was charming and kind, and my parents treated him like one of the family. He left on the day of my graduation, which I skipped so I could see him off at the airport. Two long weeks later, I was on a plane. We spent most of that summer at Jonathan's dad's house in London. One morning, we went to Hampstead Heath, ate an entire lemon meringue pie for breakfast, and then skipped across the lawn, shouting, and they were blissfully, blissfully happy forever and ever and ever. 
It was a line from a series of very silly internet videos called Tales of the Blowed. But we believed it. We were 18, and we were so sure we'd always be together, and that as long as we were together, we would be as happy as we were in that moment. Full of love, full of pie, in a beautiful park on a beautiful July day in London. We were sure of it despite his parents' divorce and my parents' lackluster marriage. We were sure of it because before we met, he was a drug addict and I was so lonely. And now, he was clean, I was connecting with people. Together, we'd undergone an almost magical transformation. And to us, our relationship seemed otherworldly, preordained, sacrosanct. And then we visited his mother in a quaint seaside village called Somerset. And you were the first woman I had ever introduced to my mother. And I think that was a shock for you, meeting my, meeting my mother and, and to have that Somerset experience. When we were there, there were, there, were, there were access to a lot of drugs. I mean, right right in front of us all the time. I mean, we were sitting at a table, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, smoking a bit of pot. And then someone like, to drop five grams of, like, you know, whatever on the table and like just start to rack up like oh you don't you don't want any of this do you for free right here right now you and the lady so your hands started shaking and i and i pulled you out of there oh it was you who saved me okay yeah it wouldn't be the first time you had done such a thing that scene in somerset left me deeply disturbed it was the moment that i first understood the extent of jonathan's addiction and his tendency for self-destruction. I loved him in spite of it, and I was certain that that love would save him. At the end of that summer, I went back to New York and started college. Jonathan started nursing school in London. It was a difficult adjustment and a lot of pressure for each of us. By midterms, our relationship had fallen apart. But a few months later, around the time Jonathan quit nursing school, We started talking again, and that summer, he came to New York to try and make our relationship work. That was also quite an amazing summer, the first time I'd seen fireflies. We slipped right back into love, even though we knew the long-distance thing was not sustainable. To stay in the country, Jonathan would either have to get into school and get a student visa, or I'd have to marry him so he could get a green card. He wanted to get married and start a family, and soon. Why do you think that's always been so important to you? Well, Freud, I think that the obvious reason is that, you know, the, the lack of uh, stability in my own family causes me to reach out and try to create fa- uh, a stable family. I suppose that's what Freud would say. We were at a stalemate. You, you chickened out on the marriage. That's really what happened. Like, straight to the point. I was n- 19 years old. I, I didn't want to do it. And Jonathan never applied to universities in the U.S. He didn't want to go back to school. That was it, you know. Although we stayed together from, you know, to the end of the trip, you know, obviously. Didn't change anything, but it, but it did cement the fact that it would end, that it, it would have to end. It didn't end. We kept talking on the phone every day. I was in love with him, but I still wasn't going to marry him. We were too young. I cared more about school and building a career. And Jonathan was still completely directionless in that respect. He felt me slipping away, so he drove me away. He knew exactly how to infuriate me, by constantly picking arguments, by twisting my words and playing devil's advocate to everything I said, even when I was just stating simple facts. It became impossible to have a conversation with him. And after a few months of that, 
I lost patience and gave up. Somewhere, though, I held on to a sliver of hope that we'd eventually find our way back to each other. What happened to you after we broke up? I came back to England, and I, I crashed. I crashed and burned. I began to use the psychedelics very heavily, and one thing led to another and ended up on a bit of powder, but not enough to get, you know, cracked out on. And then I went to an Aish lecture with a rabbi, and that was really how that, that, that whole road began just after that. That's when Jonathan became an ultra-Orthodox Jew. It was surprising, but then again, it wasn't. He'd always been interested in the spiritual. As a teenager, he'd studied the occult and could read tarot cards and runes. Later, he read the Quran, the Old and New Testaments, the Bhagavad Gita. He seemed always to be searching. Years passed. I graduated college. He got clean again. And then he moved to Jerusalem to study at a yeshiva. At the same time, I moved to Tel Aviv to study Middle Eastern history. So we decided to meet. It was August 2009, exactly four years since we'd last seen each other. I had no idea what to expect. Now that he was ultra-Orthodox, I didn't know what he'd look like or how I should greet him, whether he was Shomer Nagia and avoided contact with women. He met me on Ben Yehuda Street wearing black pants, a white button-down, and a beret instead of the traditional black fedora. He'd grown a scraggly beard and side locks, which he tucked behind his ears. And, you know, we gave each other a big hug, and we sat on the beach, under the full moon, listening to random pieces of music on each other's iPod, and that was a very, very intense moment. That old chemistry was back. Yeah. It felt like nothing had changed between us, and despite his new look, he was still Jonathan. We sat up all night on that beach, talking until just before sunrise. And in that moment, anything could have happened. And nothing happened. Not, not so much as a kiss happened. Because even though it was the first time we were living in the same country... We were further apart than ever. We didn't just have different values and goals in life. Now, he was religious and I was secular and neither of us would change. But that night, even though I realized that we would never get back together again, all the old feelings had flooded back. I expected closure from that meeting, but I came away racked with confusion. It should have been a post-mortem of our relationship, but instead, it had turned into an epic date. A date with someone I had serious feelings for, but who was completely unsuitable for me. After that night on the beach, Jonathan and I stopped talking again. For years. I went through a very dark time after that. <laughs> I, we, we, sounds like I'm just always in a dark time. There were many years in between that, that relapse and, and the other one. That, that was like, you know, I was just drinking a lot and very depressed. And then I met my first wife online on a poetry website that she had created. And uh, she liked one of my poems. We got chatting. Tamar was 19 years old. She came from a family of Messianic Christians who had all converted to ultra-Orthodox Judaism and moved to Israel. We had a lot in common that we both didn't really have much of a, 
academic education, but both very much enjoyed learning things. And we had a very, very deep attraction to each other from day one. But it was beset with issues from the get-go. A member of her family was very much against the idea of me. He felt everything was too fast. He didn't like the fact that I'd had a history of drugs. Jonathan called to invite me to his wedding. By then, I'd stopped harboring any romantic intentions towards him. But it still felt surreal and a little soul-crushing. I wanted to be happy for him, but instead of a sense of closure, I had an ominous feeling about the marriage. It was happening quickly, and Jonathan still didn't have a career or much direction at all. I got the sense that he was as unstable as ever. And I hoped that I was wrong. I hoped that things would work out for him. I made up an excuse why I couldn't go to the wedding and congratulated him. We didn't talk again until he called me from prison. After Jonathan got married, he began formal studies to become a rabbi. He started writing more seriously, and he and Tamar would host these huge Shabbat dinners. He was really building a life for himself. We got pregnant straight away, and I I have to say that pregnancy is possibly the most incredible thing in the universe. Your child growing between you, it, it, it was magical. Shlomo was a Shabbat birth. I walked into the room, me and a wife, and I, I came out as a, as a family, like holding this like little screaming pink thing. And they say something happens to you when you hear the cry, and it, I, for me it was true. And I, I heard that cry, and I, I don't know, I, I, something, something changed. Jonathan finally had his own family. It was exactly what he'd always wanted. And then I destroyed my marriage, basically. Throughout the marriage, he'd been casually using drugs. LSD and and weed and things like that. Very often without anyone knowing. It became more serious when he began suffering from back pain. And then I started taking the, the OxyContin and just about anything else that had op- opiates in it and smoking a lot of those and mixing that with, with high levels of LSD and things like that, with Valium or with Ritalin and with psychiatric medicines and with anything else I could get my hands on. I don't know what happened. I, I, I was good for so long as well. I had a blip, and I went way off the deep end. And it got there in a couple of weeks. A lot of my savings I burnt on the Oxycontin in in about three, four months. Things got more and more and more unstable with me. Everything was on its head. Lots of missing time. And then one night, it got much worse. I'm not exactly sure what happened is the truth because I know I way, way overdid it that night. And I blacked out. And when I woke up, my wife was crying in the corner, holding her, our baby. She said I had threatened her, threatened to kill her, held a knife to her throat, dragged her back into the house by her hair, and threatened to kill the kid. I find it hard to believe that that's somewhere inside me. Whether it was a verbal threat or a physical threat or whatever, that wasn't part of our relationship before or after. It was like this one terrible moment that 
for me to understand that it was that serious is very difficult. Tamar took the baby and went to stay with her parents. Within a few days, Jonathan patched things up with her and she came back home. He tried to cut down on his drug use. Things seemed to be getting at least a little bit better. Until six months after that awful night, Tamar and Jonathan had an argument. I stormed out. I got a call from the police that they were at the house with my wife. And I thought I naturally assumed something had happened. She hurt herself. And so, you know, I didn't realize I was going to get arrested. I don't think she really realized I'd get arrested either. Tamar had told the police about the incident that happened six months before. They arrested Jonathan for domestic abuse, and they told him that he could get a maximum sentence of 10 years. And he believed them. For 10 years, I wasn't going to see the sunlight. I wasn't going to live by myself or, or take a walk in the street or, or hold my boy for 10 years. So I, I ruined my, my best chance of having a normal time in prison by trying to kill myself. And that's when he started calling me a few times a week, when he was on suicide watch. I'd never known Jonathan to be violent, so when he told me what he was accused of, I was shocked. It was July 2014, the height of Operation Protective Edge, the latest round of fighting in the Israel-Gaza conflict. I was working as a journalist, and as soon as the war broke out, I went from covering concerts and conferences to protests and funerals. I'd go out and interview people whose relatives had been killed, people who were filled with grief and despair and rage. And then I'd go home and I'd get these phone calls from prison, and it felt like another emotional burden. I was powerless to help Jonathan, but felt morally obligated to keep answering his calls. He'd hit rock bottom, and he hardly had anyone to talk to. After what happened, a lot of his friends in Israel just abandoned him. When I answered the phone, he would start rambling so that it was difficult to understand him. He'd recount memories from the time we were together, stories we'd both forgotten that resurfaced in his mind as he sat in solitary confinement. We would talk about meeting up for coffee when he finally got out, which I knew I would avoid. And he'd read me poems that he'd written about his son and about me. In the meal of love, dessert was served first. The eyes you once cherished burn now with sorrow. And I'm ready now to throw myself to the one that might catch me again. More than a decade earlier, when we were 18, it was me reading a poem I'd written for him over the phone. Now, those prison phone calls were an unsettling parallel. I still loved Jonathan, but it had become a very different kind of love. It had gone from being purely romantic to familial. It was gut-wrenching to bear witness to his ruin, and when we hung up, I felt drained. But not Jonathan. I was thinking about life in New York a lot as like a really big turning post between my realities. I thought about my time clean with you, you know, totally clean, and... It was very helpful to, to have your voice in an extreme situation. And I knew that you wouldn't slam down the phone on me if I told you I was in a jail. I knew that. How did you know? I know you. 
Altogether, Jonathan served a seven-month sentence for verbal domestic threatening and one count of battery for shoving his wife against a wall. The first day out of jail was so, so powerful. I was down in Yafo in Tel Aviv looking at the sea. I broke down in tears. It was such the beauty of it. A year later, he was on my sofa, and we were looking at that old photo. These guys in the photo could have made it. It was impossible. Like, we had a romance, and then it was unsustainable, and that was it. So then why have you done a whole interview about it? You don't feel that at all. That's complete <laughs> and utter junk. Who are you kidding? It's one of the defining romances of your life. Yes. Okay. I'm okay with saying that. It's a tragedy they didn't make it. And although I have loved, and, and, and rather intensely, you know, after you, none of them have been the defining romance of my life even my marriage. That's why you're the first person I called from jail. That's why you're doing an interview. That's why we don't meet up. It was the defining romance of my life. And the truth is, I haven't loved anyone the way I loved Jonathan. Since we broke up, I have had romance and love in my life, but it was never as intense. I don't know if that's because of who Jonathan is, or because of the mysterious connection we've always had, or simply because he was my first love. But I do know, and I think I've always known, that I'll never have a love like that again. And that's why, for over a decade, I carried around a horrible sense of loss, like a hollowness that echoed through all the years and relationships since. That's why I answered Jonathan's prison phone calls. That's why I did this interview. And now, after pouring over the artifacts of our relationship, that sense of loss has dissipated. By saying out loud how big our love was for me, it's now somehow easier to just hold it. Not clinging, but also not pushing it away. Jonathan helped me do that. Now we're friends. And he's right. Wherever he is, whatever's going on with him, I'll always pick up the phone. Shoshi Shmulovitz. Shoshi's a producer on our show. Our final story is actually a version of the very first radio piece I ever did. It aired on Wisconsin Public Radio's To the Best of Our Knowledge, long before we ever released the first episode of Israel's story. It's the story of my relationship, or really the end of my relationship, with my college girlfriend, Natalie. Natalie, by the way, isn't her name, but she asked that we not use her real name on the radio. Act 3. Anywhere. At the end of the summer of 2008, my girlfriend Natalie, who I was absolutely sure I was going to marry, broke up with me. It was kind of surprising and totally one-sided, and mainly just devastating. And what's more, 
after nearly two intense years together, it was over the phone. One of the things that she said in that last fateful phone call was that I wasn't flexible enough. Honestly, I had noticed that myself, how I was rigidly wedded to certain ways of life, and how it would be almost impossible for me to change my mind, even on small things like what we'd order at a restaurant. So I took her criticism to heart. I was just about to move to Cambridge, England, to start a master's in archaeology, and the quest for flexibility became the theme of my life. I wasn't absolutely sure what she had meant by it, but I decided on an all-out approach. If I was going to become flexible, I thought, it would be in every possible way. So I joined a yoga studio, signed up for some Pilates classes, did my daily morning stretches. For months, there was one thing and one thing only on my mind. How to show Natalie that I'd become flexible and win her back. Now, I knew, of course, that her complaint didn't really have to do with the fact that I couldn't touch my toes. So I was constantly searching for ideas that would expand my flexibility. And one rainy night, as I was walking back to my room from a screening of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, I had this idea which seemed both simple and exciting. If I really wanted to become flexible, I needed to place myself in a situation where I had no control over the outcome. By the time I reached my room, I'd thought of the perfect solution. It was the middle of the semester, but instead of opening my lecture notes on Mesopotamian archaeology, I found a cardboard box, tore off a small rectangle, and scribbled anywhere on it in big blue, all-cap letters. I threw some clothes, a tent, and a sleeping bag into a backpack, and went outside. My idea? To hitchhike to, well... Anywhere. The rules were simple. I would accept any ride, and that way I would literally have no control over where I was headed. Or at least that's what I told myself. You see, even though this was designed as this sort of no set destination kind of romantic odyssey, It's hard, maybe even impossible, to shed years of inflexibility in just one evening. So, as I stood on the side of the road, my thumbs stretched out like I had seen in 1970s European movies, I harbored this secret desire that if things went really, really, really well, I would end up in Seville, in Spain. The Seville dream wasn't entirely random. Growing up, my older brother Oren had told me about his favorite paradox. It's about a barber from Seville who shaves all the men in town who don't shave themselves. Maybe you've heard of it. The question Oren explained to me is whether or not the barber should shave himself. It's a classic paradox because if he does shave himself, he shouldn't. But if he doesn't, then he should. Now, I know this isn't totally rational, so bear with me. But in my slightly obsessive and hazy state of mind, I felt some close affinity to that poor old fictional barber. We were both going through endless mind loops. Him about shaving people, 
and me about trying to be flexible enough to get Natalie back, even though that dogged desire was itself a prime example of my inflexibility. Anyway, I decided that I had to search for this barber. Maybe, once I found him, we could put our minds together and break out of our respective, maddening rabbit holes. Not that many people stopped to offer me rides, and I began to feel that I had missed the window of opportunity for my ideal fantasy by, say, about three decades. I walked to the freeway outside of town and held up my sign. Barely anyone noticed me. The few who did slowed down, read it, kind of smiled, and whizzed off. Half the night had passed before someone stopped. He was an elderly Pakistani man who was on his route to refill soda vending machines. He took me to Newmarket, the next town over, where I was picked up by some stoned members of a teenage punk band who stopped to rehearse at some grimy basement nearby. The farther I got from the large cities, getting rides got easier, and it was all kind of exhilarating. I was having a blast, mainly because I felt I was becoming more flexible by the minute. Natalie was going to be so impressed. Almost immediately it dawned on me that Natalie would only be impressed if she knew about my journey. But since we weren't really talking, and she was halfway around the world, I decided I would write her postcards, which would chronicle the adventure and my growing flexibility. There would be one postcard a day, telling her everything I saw and learned, But quickly, too much was happening for just one daily dispatch. And I found myself writing two, three, sometimes even four, five, or six postcards a day. Now, I was definitely not exactly stable. But I also wasn't crazy. And even in the middle of it all, I realized that she wouldn't really appreciate receiving dozens and dozens of unsolicited postcards from me. So I started keeping them, stamped and ready to go in a large manila envelope in my backpack. In my imagination, which was in overdrive mode throughout the trip, I would present her with the whole bundle one day, and she would read them and see just how much I had missed her and melt. I was also going to give her another gift. On the flip side of my Anywhere sign, I wrote in the same big block letters, I love you, Natalie. And I did that because I figured that I was meeting so many strangers, from so many different places, that I would take snapshots of them holding up the sign, and then make an album with a whole world worth of people expressing my undying love. So, yeah, dire times. About a week into my trip, somewhere in Kent, I got into a van of gypsies who were heading to Holland. They smuggled me onto the ferry from Dover in England to Calais in France, which seemed like a big step towards reaching my barber in Seville. Once I was on the ferry, I snuck into the truck driver's cafeteria to see if any of them were going to Spain. Plenty of them were in fact heading there, but no one seemed to want company. No one, that is, except for one tall, shy man with dark hair, sitting in the corner eating by himself. That was Vladimir who I later found out spoke not a single word of English. I asked him where he was going, and he said, Spain. I was delighted. Spain, I said. 
Oh, that's, that's so great. Can I come with you? Vladimir didn't really understand what I was saying, so he said yes. And that's how, about an hour later, I found myself climbing into the cabin of his huge semi-trailer and driving into the French night. After Vladimir said, George Bush, George Bush, we more or less exhausted all our common vocab and continued in complete silence. Half an hour later, I suddenly noticed that Vladimir took an unexpected left-hand turn into Belgium. I looked at him and sort of anxiously pointed south, yelling out, Vladimir, Spain, Spain! But Vladimir, who never seemed to get too excited about anything, just looked at me, a bit confused, and with some sort of a deadpan seriousness just said, No, no Spain! Ukraine. Thinking back, I probably should have been concerned. But at the time, there was only one thought going through my head. If there was ever a moment to practice my flexibility, this was it. Natalie was going to go bananas. So for the next four days, Vladimir and I crisscrossed Europe, making our way to the Ukraine. He kind of taught me how to drive his truck and managed to explain that we were taking the side roads because he didn't want to pay the tolls. And then, finally, we arrived at the Slovakian-Ukrainian border crossing, near Uzhgorod. We were detained there because it turned out that Vladimir's entire truck... It was packed with counterfeit Barbie dolls that he was trying to smuggle into the Ukraine. Once the guards realized that I wasn't part of the Barbie doll scheme, they let me go. And in some sort of Forrest Gump-like fashion, I figured that if I'd gotten this far from home, I might as well continue. So I traveled all over the Ukraine. Stayed with Chabadniks in Odessa, with Braslev Hasidim in Uman, and even saw the former centers of Eastern European Jewry in places like Lvov and Kamanets Podolsky. It was the end of the winter, and I remember everything looking pretty drab and depressing. At night I would stay in cheap inns, or hostels, or with families renting out a room, or even a sofa, for the night. I ate a ton of potatoes, in every possible shape and form. All in all, I was quite lonely. There were also fun moments, like the time when I went to the opera house in Odessa, and I was, I kid you not, the only person left in the audience at the end of Verdi's four-hour-long Don Carlos. Or when I stumbled into a magical hidden kingdom of pierogies in Kiev and sampled every single kind. I ended up in Moscow, where I got off at the central train station and bordered the Trans-Siberian Railway, which crossed all of frozen Siberia, Mongolia's Gobi Desert, and stopped, seven days later, in Beijing. There were almost no tourists on the train other than me. It was mainly Russian farmers going from one small village to another. And every night they'd throw the wildest vodka parties in the sleeping cabin. The train would make a whole bunch of stops each day, and I would run out to the platform and snatch some pictures of locals holding up my I Love You Natalie sign. 
The pile of postcards also continued to grow. But more than anything, I really did start to listen and become a bit more flexible. I was collecting ideas and titbits of wisdom along the way. In Kiev, for example, at a particularly seedy youth hostel, I had stayed up all night listening to the stream of consciousness of a middle-aged Canadian hockey fan. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you never take, he quoted Wayne Gretzky as we were saying goodbye. And then, a few weeks later, at the train station in Ulaanbaatar, I met a beautiful Swedish drifter who told me that her life motto came from John Lennon. Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. It was almost Passover when we finally pulled into Beijing, and I went to a Chabad Seder at some huge function room in one of the fancy hotels. I sat down next to a gorgeous Israeli girl, Maya I think her name was, and began telling her about my hitchhiking adventure. She seemed very enthusiastic, and by the end of the evening asked me if I wanted to continue the Odyssey, together, and hitchhike with her to India. I didn't know what to say. Even though I had become completely swept away by the trip, I had never forgotten why I had set out on it in the first place. But could it be, I thought to myself, that this whole journey would ultimately lead me not back to Natalie, as I had hoped, but rather to opening up a new chapter with someone else? There was something both bitter and poetically ironic about that thought. I took down Maya's email address and told her I would write the following morning. Now, remember, this entire trip took place in the middle of my semester. I hadn't told any of my professors. And whenever they'd email me to ask where I was or how my thesis was going, I would reply that we must have just missed each other in the department, or something like that. But with Maya's offer, I began to wonder who really needed a master's from Cambridge anyway. I drafted a long email to my advisors, saying that I wasn't coming back. Luckily, I didn't send it right away. The very next day, I met up with Maya to go over some logistics. And then, completely nonchalantly, she said, Yeah, and we can stop in Tibet on the way and pick up my boyfriend, Udi. I was like, your boyfriend, Udi? Udi, and the fact that I was getting a bit tired of this vagabond lifestyle, all seemed like a sign to me. Go back to the real world it was saying, and to your boring thesis about proto-Israelites and pig bones. For once, I listened. So I hitchhiked to the Beijing airport and asked the Chinese travel agent for a ticket on the cheapest same-day flight going anywhere west of there. He started typing into his computer and then looked up with a grin. He informed me in broken English that I was very lucky, because there were still tickets available on a cheap flight leaving a few hours later to Europe. Oh, that's wonderful, I said. Where is it to? And he looked down at the screen and then back up at me and said, Spain. So despite the very long detour, I did end up in Seville, and I did go looking for a local barber. When I found one, he couldn't have been farther removed from my fantasy. I had pictured this fat, balding Spaniard called Juan Carlos or Pedro, 
I thought he'd have a huge mustache and would spout out words of wisdom about life within a paradox. But in reality, the barber's name was Mustafa, and he was a 20-year-old recent immigrant from Algeria who had no idea what I was talking about. The Andalusian music I had imagined as the backdrop of this meeting turned out, in the real world, to be Celine Dion's theme song from Titanic. Other than an outrageously expensive shave, Mustafa didn't give me any words of wisdom to take back home with me. A few months later, taking up Wayne Gretzky and completely ignoring John Lennon, I moved back to the States to be closer to Natalie and try to show her my new flexible self. And on her birthday that year, I invited her over to my place to present her with my labor of love an album with pictures of more than a hundred people all over the world holding up my sign. A whole world of people, all the way from Senegal to Afghanistan, telling her how much I loved her. On the shelf in my room, carefully tied up with blue string, was the pile of postcards I had written to her. I thought I would bring them out at the most climactic moment of our reconciliation. But things didn't quite turn out that way. She opened the picture album to some random page with a chubby toddler in Australia holding up a makeshift I love you Natalie sign. She sort of smiled, flipped one more page, and then gently closed the book. There was a moment of silence. I looked at her, she looked down at the floor. And then, at least this is the way I remember it, she got up, put on her coat, and walked to the door. I was stunned and said, But wait, your album, you, you forgot it. And Natalie looked right at me and said, Oh, was I supposed to take that? I've seen Natalie a few times since, but that was our last intimate, if you want to call it that, interaction. The whole story happened a long time ago, and has sort of entered this mythical place in my life. I've told it more times than you can imagine. For years I thought of it as my all-star story, and I would tell it, stupidly I guess, on every first date I went on. You can just imagine how well that went over. And when you tell a story so many times, you sort of lose the experience of it actually happening to you. But when I try to strip it of all those additional layers, and go back to what it actually meant to me at the time, I'm left with this gnawing fear that maybe, probably, this crazy worldwide quest for flexibility was actually the best example of the exact opposite. That compulsive rigidity and uncompromising stubbornness Natalie was running away from all along. And that's our breakup episode. You can hear all our episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other main podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Now, I know you've heard me say this before, but 
or looking for a sponsor. We have a wonderful audience, people who are all interested in and engaged with Israel. So if you want to support our show and reach what has become a lot of people, email us at sponsor at prx.org. I want to thank two very, very important people. The most important. My beloved parents, David and Dorothy Harmon, who did the voiceover recordings in the kibbutz piece. Thanks, Imanaba. Thanks to Hazira Performance Art Arena, who gave us permission to use music from their great puppet drama, The Road to En Harod, and to the musicians Guy Scherf and Rona Kainan. Thanks also to our friends at TT Book, Charles Monroe Kane, Kirill Owen, Steve Paulson, and Anne Strangeamps. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roi Gilron, Maya Kosover, Shoshi Shmulovitz, and Rachel Fisher. Amir Faktor and Itai Hyman are our incredible production interns, and today we're delighted to introduce our newest intern, the talented Katie Pulverman. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, yalla bye, and well, over and out. Laila, de mahama, saviv saviv menam nehemot parot. Laila, de mahama, Saviv Saviv Menam Nehemot Parot Aderech El Hakutsa Enak Tsahara Vegam Lo Aruka Aderech El Hakutsa Enak Tsahara Sahara, we're going